2: Fiverr is the solo moniker of Simone Schmidt, a gifted and outspoken songwriter based in Toronto, Ontario. Formerly of the band $100 and currently also a member of the highest order, Schmidt generally works within realms that owe some debt to traditional North American folk music. Her latest album as Fiverr features 11 fictional field recordings derived from case files of patients at the Rockwood Asylum for the criminally insane... Between 1854 and 1881. The stunning record is called Audible Songs from Rockwood, and it's out now via Idefix Fix Records. Schmidt and I caught up at the CFRU studios shortly after she performed songs and a lecture at the University of Guelph near the end of 2017. Part of the Entertainment One podcast network, and sponsored by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Grandad's Donuts, This is Fiverr on the 374th episode of Creative Control with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Simone, welcome back to the show.
0: Thanks, Vish.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while. It's been a while since you were on the show. In fact, I think the last time you were on was part of the the documentary about E-Day Fix.
0: Yeah, and we recorded it. Remotely.
2: Yes, we weren't in the same room. Yeah, so
0: it feels like a new experience.
2: But it sounded like we were in the same room. So I guess then...
0: we did simulate that.
2: <laughs> it was good. I enjoyed that, and I thank you for that uh, time.
0: Can and... I tell you that the setup that I had going to record was during a time when I was endlessly demoing oh. the record that we're talking Oh, about.
2: so you already had... Oh, okay, you were in that frame of mind of having a nice technical... Yeah, easy to work. Like with. I
0: had holed up in my friend Ian's house for like a we- a month on my own. Oh, and I and I was trying to finish the record. It was like this the second part of me trying to f- finish the record, and because uh, this record took a really long time to make. It seems that way. Yeah, and yeah. so I remember that interview as like taking a break from belaboring like a musical phrase. Phrase Right, right.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm. So I represent to you a respite Mm -hmm. from this record, and now we're going to dive right into it. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to quickly say that, uh, which we didn't, I don't know if we've done this before on this show, I want to just establish that you and I met in Guelph. Yeah. Like, you you were in Guelph for school?
0: Yeah, I I went to the University of Guelph for two years, and then I wrote a paper in an independent study, that was entitled, Liberalism is a House We Must Exit and Burn, the Uselessness of the White Academic and Social Struggle. Uh-huh. And I really believed what I wrote, and so I dropped it. You dropped out. And moved to Toronto to join the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. But um, I didn't... Yeah, I mean, I was in a band called Shit on the President's Door, and you were in the Neutron Stars I think
2: that's when we played a uh some kind of was it a benefit show yeah
0: for sure I don't remember I don't what... think anyone should have been paying to watch us play <laughs> <laughs> I mean me <laughs> not your band I liked your band your was band. good
2: your band was your, good no we was... were a polished band yeah you were good we were like we played a lot and worked on stuff but yours seemed more of like a performance art thing
0: yeah I mean I think it was me Ja, Ching Wilson Yang who's now an acclaimed writer yeah and just won the Lambda Literary Award, and Kyle Porter, whose baby is being induced today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, who were in a band together. Yeah.
2: Oh, okay. So yeah. So everything changes. So a bit, uh, sh- that, that was sort of the sh- uh Dawn of the Burnt Oak record label thing here, and also mm-hmm. Kyle, you still play with? Mm-hmm. In which the highest order? In The highest order. Yeah. Does he do stuff with Fiverr Fiver and highest order? Kind of confuse me sometimes.
0: Yeah, I know. I just choose the musicians I want to work with when right. I want to. In Fiverr, right. and the highest order is like a fixed group of musicians. Although Kyle will be taking a break because he's having a child. Uh, having a child. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So I I bring this up not to just establish that we have this long standing. Um, connection or or rapport but do you remember what year that was what year would you have come to Guelph mm, any idea
0: I guess I was 17 when I started there so 17 33 now so I skipped grades
2: because um, you were smart
0: I, I, I hated school so much <laughs> did they accelerate you yeah oh okay yeah. okay yeah so
2: you were 17
0: mm-hmm and so I think it would have been Uh, I was born in 1984. (laughs) 16 years ago.
2: So what year is it? So yeah, 2001, 2002, something like that? Yeah, 2002, I think. Okay. Yeah, you seemed smart to me at the time. (laughs) At the time, you seemed smart to me.
0: I don't remember anything from those years, almost.
2: Right. It was at Cafe Aquarius, the show. Yeah. uh, Which was upstairs at the time in one of its, I think it's one of its last locations. Anyway, it was just an amazing Vegan restaurant and the performance space. It was
0: the first time I had nutritional yeast on tofu and had it taste good.
2: That is, yeah, that tofu dish. I think Noah 23 still knows how to make it. Wow. And I should call him because that, uh, what was it? It was like tempeh. It was tofu and rice and it was unbelievable. Yeah,
0: it was really good.
2: Yeah, I missed that place. And uh, unfortunately, Katie passed away uh, a year ago or something. Yeah. So anyway, uh, good times for us. Knowing each other, <laughs> you and I, and it's uh, great to have you here uh, to talk about this very uh, well thought out record, Audible Songs from Rockwood. And uh, I was just immersing myself again in this uh, this uh, what would you call this thing exactly? Liner notes. It's liner notes, but it's in a it's in a, it's a book. It's an essay. Yeah. It's an essay form. It's a long kind of academic uh, essay that you've written about. Um, w- uh, I guess the history of this place. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the Rockwood Asylum for the Criminally Insane, first of all, and and, and why you feel this need to tell this story?
0: Um, The building of the Rockwood Asylum still stands, but it's totally locked up and guarded 24-7. It's owned by the province of Ontario now, and it stands about a 10-minute walk west of the Kingston Penitentiary in what is now known as Kingston. It's land that the Mississauga and the Haudenosaunee and the Huron-Wendat have long and ongoing like deep roots in, colonized by the British, like the land we're on now. And uh, it was built over a 12-year period between 1856 and 1868. And um, it was built to house the criminally insane. The criminally insane was like a designation kept for people who either had declared insanity at trial, but more commonly people who didn't fit into the social order of the prisons or the asylums. So at the time, the Kingston Penitentiary that was opened in 1831 had a rule of silence and you had to work all day if you were gonna live there. And if you couldn't fulfill either of those rules, um, then you were considered criminally insane. And up until 56, they held people who were criminally insane in the basement of the penitentiary and you know sometimes they would try to move them to the Toronto Asylum which is now called the Center for Addiction and Mental Health but
2: on Queen Street yeah
0: but that um, he, the superintendent there Joseph Workman uh, really couldn't deal with the criminally insane he called them moral monsters and so yeah there was like all these commissions into how the Kingston Penitentiary was being run and abuse that was happening there and, as a result, it was like found that their warden at the Kingston Penitentiary was actually goading some of the inmates into insanity. And when I say I'm just gonna make a note that when I'm talking about insanity i'm I'm talking about it as a state designation, yeah,
2: I yeah. don't
0: really think of it as like a something that's true. and I like I feel the same about mental illness, generally as a term. I think if people want to self-identify, that's cool. But for all intents and purposes, when I'm talking about insanity and criminality, these are state designations.
2: Yeah, there's a, a paragraph in this essay about a small boy, uh, And forgive me if I mispronounce the name, Narcisse Bochet. Mm-hmm. And he is uh, involved, it says here, 24 documented corporal punishments within six months of his arrival for the following basic fun— and you outline talking at the, the the, the punishments are for things like talking at dinner, talking and laughing at breakfast, making noise in cell, having tobacco, talking and playing, like not things we would consider insane. It's a, yeah. It is it a, is essentially a minor disobedience was seemed to be classified as insanity. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed to be... Uh, it seemed to be uh based on someone's ethnic heritage as much as anything else uh, their gender these types of things yeah
0: i think that's true poverty you know epilepsy was a form of insanity then yeah so there are always shifting ideas about what about what constitutes insanity if you look at the dsm now it's only it's been just over 20 years since homosexuality has yeah. been taken out right yeah um as a something that's been pathologized. And I think that it's something that we don't always consider. I think generally in our culture that the diagnoses are opinions. But one thing that became really clear to me as I was going through the archives of the case files was because all of these um, diagnoses and charges were written in the handwriting of the people doling them out, and I had to read them in these old scripts. Like, they clearly were the opinions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talk about a medical opinion, but, like, we sometimes still think of it as, like, objective science. And I don't think that...
2: Oh, you're uh, saying they're subjective opinions. Yeah. Right. And they might be inspired by... Uh, all sorts of prejudices. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the social context in which people are finding themselves.
2: We're at a weird point, I think, in the way we consume uh, certainly journalism and and I think people are uh, certainly... uh, There's a strange relationship with history and why it should resonate now and how it should resonate Mm -hmm. now and whether it... You know, there's talk of a lot more discussion about the erasure of history and acknowledgement of history and all these things and I feel like uh that's a real polarity that's going on i've it's an unexpected polarity. I thought you know history is to me very important, and precedents are very important and and making sure we don't repeat the same socio cultural mistakes is very important, but there seems to be a real push back against those notions um you know in this book is fr- or this uh, this uh, record is framed as songs collected from the case files of the Rockwood Asylum for the criminally insane eighteen fifty six to eighteen eighty one. Why does this why do these stories still resonate with you now and what do you think uh, their significance uh, might be for what's going on now?
0: Well, I didn't know the answer to that question before I started the project. I think at the time when I first was inspired to write about it, It had to do with, like, my love for old-time music. Like, I really love old-time traditional uh, Anglo-American music, like bluegrass. And I love that instrumentation, the harmonies, and um, even the style of writing. And I thought that I would be, like, re-inscribing some, like, songs... Of forgotten people into that music, right, um, because I feel like a lot of it is about women being evil or driving men to insanity or which things are tr- like that. which
2: are tropes in the folk tradition, yeah, yeah, but
0: then I thought like maybe maybe it'd be cool to take a different angle and feel like proud singing some of the songs in this style, but then the more I looked into it, the more complicated the project became, and there are so many things that became clear about history to me that maybe as a scholar I would have known Hmm. like that archive is an apparatus of settler colonial power Um, I think that
2: uh, sorry uh, archives generally is that what you're saying yeah like
0: in general like the archive is an apparatus of power like what gets remembered what doesn't right of course what big blanks are left and you know who speaks through the archive you know um
2: Right, how data is collected, what is retained, Mm -hmm. that is actually factual. Yeah, I understand. And what
0: is considered fact. And it's interesting, like, uh, going through notes of the Legislative Assembly, you can do it online on canadiana.com, like this, or CA. I don't know what it is. But (laughs) but, um, it's all, like, these typed-up versions of these notes to the legislature. And then you can actually... Also look in the archive and read them in their the original handwriting, and the difference between doing those two things and how they register as fact or opinion <laughs> or subjective experience is quite different. So mm. I think about that a lot. The reason why the the stories started, to, or like there are so many ways that the stories become relevant, and I guess that's why I like devoted so much to writing about it. Because I realized that I couldn't write songs that were particularly didactic that would be any good. I didn't want to write like boring songs that were like, and then this happened, and I came from Ireland. Like I wanted <laughs> um, to write artful songs, and I and I think like if the women at Rockwood were writing songs, and I and I was producing a record, I would choose the best songs. Right. So I wrote a lot of duds that I threw out. So. A lot of the things that I represent in the book are me trying to contextualize the things that made me write the songs and write the characters in certain ways. Right. So things that, like, are still relevant today are things like that, like, at the end of 2016, Ontario declared that it would open its first dedicated um, jail for women who um, are diagnosed with mental illness. Like, this is... Factually true, except be because Rockwood uh, was open pre Confederation, pre Ontario. <laughs> oh right, <laughs> you know, but right. like, tech, it's actually not true at all. Rockwood was was exactly Ro- Rockwood that. was the first one. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, sixty seven percent of women in federal prisons right now are diagnosed with mental illness and are being treated on the inside through a range of mm. drug therapy. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Not mindfulness. Right. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, things like that I think are relevant. Um, the pathologization.
2: By the way, of, just to clarify here, you started this project when?
0: Uh, Well, I, my first song I wrote in 2012, but then I started getting to the archives in 2014.
2: Right, and then at the end of 2016, this story emerges that it makes your project all the more relevant. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, and I was like working on the li- liner notes up until the end of February. Like I put out the record in April, but like it just kept feeling like there was something else and something else and something else that I could add to it and then refine. So there are a range of songs like on there s- things like the Tort of Seduction, which is like foundational to how uh, we understand rape trials now. Hmm. Um, Yeah, like so many things are relevant. And I think considering the settler colonial, you know, roots of our carceral systems, uh, Rockwood wouldn't actually didn't have any racialized indigenous women at it, which is to say in the directory of patients, I couldn't find anyone who was indigenous. But it is like foundational to the carceral system that now disproportionately houses indigenous women. Right, right. And so I think there are like things to consider in that way. There's like a, you know, at the time in Toronto, the police were pretty much all Orangemen, and there's like a disproportionate representation of Irish Catholics. Hmm. Okay. Right. Things like that. So you could see like the way in which certain people are targeted because of um, their, because of prejudice when it comes to both race and religion. Um, and that happens today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like this is all relevant to what's happening now. Um, just in, in terms of, I feel like some things get swept under the rug, some things aren't addressed directly anymore. But this is a very stark <laughs> reminder of the way uh, difference is articulated by people in power. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to, before we get into the the songs, there is one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, You identify yourself here as a collector, which, is that an archival designation?
0: Yeah, well, I think that one of the problems I ran into in making the record was the fear that it would be taken fully as fact. Ah.
2: Um, Mm. And
0: so one of the ways to bring up a range of questions that I had about the undertaking that I took was to invent a fictional song collector and the song Mm. collector is like traditionally if you don't know like uh, this Smithsonian Folkways label would have had song collectors and they'd roam about Scotland or Madison County or you know all throughout the states and and canada edith Falk was one uh she focused on the ottawa valley you know uh, and they record traditional songs and then they'd write these kind of ridiculously like anthropological liner notes right and they'd act like experts about this region that they'd maybe hung out in for two weeks or a month or um and there's part of me that like wanted to untie and unpack that. That identity, because that's really, my, my big fear. As I was doing this project, was like, how am I acting as if I'm an expert on a thing that I cannot possibly be an expert on?
2: Do you think there's a kind of exoticism in folklore, mm-hmm. folklorism? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, know, I mean, I've always thought of that. Yeah. It seems odd that. You know, Alan Lomax was going around just collecting this material, uh, and then it was, you know, collected and produced for commercial purposes. Yeah. And I often wondered I I mean, on the one hand, I find the people like that and the people you mentioned in this book to be heroic on one level because they went out and did this documentation. But you're saying there's a flip side to that.
0: Yeah, I think that it's important to recognize the power imbalance that people have. Especially when they're claiming to represent, like the truth, um, and with definitive terms, and so you'll notice that there's like an academic way of writing, but there are moments throughout the full piece, if you read it all the way through, where the subjectivity of the song collector is like fully revealed. Yeah, like she just can't kind of keep up the right. ruse. Right. Right. Um, and I wanted that to be clear. I thought that would be like an artful way of acknowledging the fiction that is kind of inherent to this process of song collecting to begin with and then also of archival studies. And, yeah, like rather than just being like, here's a disclaimer, and rather than being like, you can't know anything for sure, I was like, why don't I make up someone and then people will ask me the question you just asked
1: me.
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm just curious about it because it struck me as well. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I, and I uh, I will do so as tactfully as I can, because a lot of what you're delving into is uh, designations of mental illness, designations of insanity. The word insanity really screams at me as it comes across the like as I'm reading it. It just it jumps out at me, mm-hmm. and I'm just curious about your relationship with notions of uh, insanity. Uh, do you relate to insanity in some particular way?
0: Yeah, I mean I've been pathologized for sure and I tend to not talk about my personal life
2: that's fair (laughs) Uh, that's that's what I I, and I like I say I want to be tactful about it uh I think uh, a lot of people have a detached relationship with such a thing uh, in terms of their own um I guess just mental health Mm -hmm. and uh every once in a while you I think as a person you're confronted with it uh yeah what's going on with me right now
0: Um, yeah I really think that we live in a weird culture where like celebrities are going around like hashtag bell let's talk talking about mental illness and I feel like my contribution to talking about it is to like really look at it as a historical phenomenon and try to reconcile the past with the present and uh, offer people stories in order to do that I don't really feel like being confessional
2: no yeah yeah well let's get into uh, these songs uh, and we're gonna try to go through go through them as uh, one at a time I know I'm just looking I know we don't have a lot of time so let's see what we can get to here yeah let's do it Waltz for One
3: yeah will I live to love you till the day I die is my love for you and alone, but I've been here death this night, having lived for love and loved alone.
0: Well, that's the song of this woman, this young woman who's working on a farm, and she uh, gets pregnant, her father is pretty industrious and he figures out how to profit from the situation because there's this tort in upper Canadian law called the tort of seduction Hmm. and it allows a father to sue for damages to his property so of course at the time there's this like British law of master-servant and the master owns the servant and because the daughter is effectively a servant she's also the property of her father and so hmm. the idea is that you could sue for damages for what you lose in terms of the labor or the wages that your daughter might have made for you outside of the home. So he figures out how to first rid himself of the responsibility of having a grandchild and gives her a folk abortative and then, you know, brings her to Rockwood and says, she's. My daughter's going crazy. She's obsessed with these dudes um, on the farm. Hmm. And so in that way, he can also sue because he loses her to the asylum.
2: Is Um, this drawn from a specific case study?
0: Part of it is. Okay. Yeah, part of it is not. Part of it is not in the sense that I, like, read this as uh, a a similar few stories through a different historical uh, Accounts and then, um, but it matched up with the case file.
2: Yeah. Okay, can you say anything about the uh, musical arrangement per se?
0: That was a really cool one because uh, John Showman came in and played. Um, John Showman, if you don't know him, you probably just don't listen to traditional <laughs> North American folk music. But he's like one cliff top. He's like a hot shot, and he's not just. Like a hot shot because he's technically amazing. He's a hot shot because he's lyrically just like a phenomenal playing, and his and his music like really expresses emotion. And I can't believe he worked with me on this project. But um, where is he based? Toronto. Oh, okay. And I grew up watching him with the Foggy Hogtown Boys and uh, like Crazy Strings in, at the Silver Dollar. Oh, okay. On Wednesday nights, but uh, he came in and he recorded one track. And then I was like, cool, that's amazing. And he was like, okay, just let me play it again. Hmm. So I muted his track and I let him play. And then he was like, okay, play them both at once. <laughs> and then I did, and they fit together
2: exquisitely. Okay. All right. Do you, uh, I appreciate that insight there. I, I don't know if I have many follow-ups. Do you want to move on? Sure. Okay. We move on to House of Lost Words.
3: Nothing had come of that word, but love. Temperton, Texas, can't hear me, he wrote, it'd be.
2: which invokes Templeton, Texas quite a bit. It struck me as I was hearing that. What what is it about Templeton, Texas?
0: Oh, that was like the location from which a letter from a husband of an inmate was written. Oh, Actually, Temple, Texas, but in order to fit the rhyme scheme, I thought that I would take the liberty or that this character would take the liberty. You know, I journal as the characters and then I write their songs. So, like, I think of all of these inmates not just as like inmates but as songwriters because they're like the best songwriters at the asylum
2: yeah there's such an interesting theatrical aspect to this project like the fictional aspect is you know the the characters really shine through in each song and this is all uh, I mean it's drawn from some of the case files I think and stories you encountered but you're basically inventing all of this
0: yeah 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 for sure I mean, the thing that he didn't invent in this story is that this—well, like, a lot of it, actually. There was a series of letters between a superintendent and a husband, Mm. and they uh, recounted how the husband was far away in Texas, wanted to check on his wife. superintendent said that she's all right, totally sound body, sound mind, and he should come pick her up. And then the guy writes back, and he's like, okay, I'll be no less than, like, two years. Two years? Yeah. And then he's like, okay, I sent 25 bucks in the mail for Christmas. And then there's like this 30-year lag in the documentation, and there's another letter, and it's from the woman's daughter who's like, we always wondered what happened to my mother. Is she still there? And the superintendent writes back, he's like, yeah, she's totally fine. You should come pick her up.
2: Meanwhile, she's completely uh, distraught. I- isolated.
0: Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and so I thought of her as like maybe a vehicle to talk about changes that happened at the asylum because, you know, I talked about the horses' stables and how the women were living in the horses' stables over the time that was being built. But then once the asylum was built, it was like this big limestone building that was like badly funded.
2: Yeah.
0: It was cold. The, there weren't enough boilers for it to work for a lot of winters. Um, and then also people were, you know held in isolation um their food was pushed through like a little slat in the door um i was thinking about all the things that changed and also didn't change and a lot of that information came from like architectural uh information that i dug up in the archive there are other things like there's a line in there called winter it says winter's child has come and gone and come and gone and that would be a reference to like this time in um like the history of the asylum when they started admitting private patients, and mm-hmm. this twelve-year-old who was named Chloe Louise Winter, who was like a dignitary, I forget his first name, Mister Winter's daughter, was admitted and then and then taken out. And so there was like a tiered system, as there is in healthcare always. And people, you know, some p- inmates would be watching other inmates have a better or worse time, right? Um, But, yeah, so, like, that's this weird line that's totally poetic if you hear it in the song. Winter's child has come and gone, come and gone. It could infer a range of things. Right. And it's meant to be that way, but it's drawn totally from a fact that you never will learn about. And I think that's, like, how songwriting always is. You know, when you write a song, you're always working from an observation. I think if you're a good songwriter, those things aren't always revealed. And that's why we have these conversations.
2: (laughs) You mentioned uh, that it's a fact that uh, you wouldn't learn about. Do you have a? There's a totally. uh, This is based in sort of academic language, like this. This. uh, This book. uh, Yeah,
0: it's like making fun of the ethnomusicologist. It is style of writing. It is
2: a little bit, but do you have kind of a curriculum aspiration to something like this? Like this is something that. For those of us who weren't familiar with these stories or this place, it has this uh, power and this impact of teaching people. It has a pedagogical effect. Mm. Is that something you... I, I don't imagine it's no. something you aspire to. <laughs> Not at all. But you could see someone teaching a course on something like this at a in a high school or university or something.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just did a lecture at like an 8.30 a.m. Yeah, at the University of Guelph here. That's at the right. the University of Guelph. That's why I'm here. But I didn't really... Um, I didn't expect to do that. I dropped out of school, as I said. And for me, like, the classroom is a bit of a strange locale. Like, this morning, it didn't feel familiar.
2: Well, you have, I think, uh, a fairly open contempt for (laughs) institutional (laughs) academia. And I think for, you know, even in our discussion of the archive and who controls the archive and who controls information, I mean, you, you are clearly... Trying to you know make have this incisive dialogue about the way information is conveyed over history, yeah.
0: yeah, I feel very critical of European styles of understanding information, and I think I'm really lucky to have you know been able to read critiques from indigenous scholars like you know leanne Simpson, um, talking about how.
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: Traditional knowledge of the land that we're on is never received, you know, by the academy as full and as important and as fact. And I think yeah. that that is changing because so many indigenous scholars have. Struggled and have pushed the academy. Um,
2: and are entering the academy.
0: Yeah. So for me, I mean, I think that that is a whole situation that I can't speak to, but I can speak to what I've learned from it. And to also, like, I have a history of working in institutions, right? Yes. Like, I worked with a few people in my life who were beholden to institutions because they had intellectual... I mean, they had physical difference. Um, And so my friend Aaron, who had cerebral palsy, um, he spoke with a board um, because he couldn't communicate verbally. He would speak using communication facilitation. And I came to know him really intimately. And watching the way that he had to navigate the institution in that way and watching the way in which his knowledge of those systems was never valued by anyone in control, um... Watching the way in which not, like, one academic would have consulted with him um, around his experience as a non-speaking person just, like, really showed this massive gap in how who gets to share their opinion and who gets to be known and who gets to be considered an expert. So I think I carry all those critiques with me. That's not new. But um, I think, like, if... You asked me if I think this should be a part of a curriculum. I mean, I guess I believe in education outside of the academy and, like, I tour as a folk musician mostly in the territory of, like, Canada. And I I believe that when we're looking at trying to change the way things are to relegate issues of politics, critiques of the medical systems, understandings of criminality to the institution seems like a big shame since those things affect way more people than ever attend university, you know? So I kind of just believe in spreading the knowledge in general.
2: Yeah, that's fair. I guess I'm just thinking about the notion of classrooms, say, around the country full of 300, 400 kids, students, Mm -hmm. encountering this material. What kind of impact could that have?
0: Yeah I wonder. <laughs> I wonder
2: too. I mean a lot of the subtext of what you're saying is and I think of, of this project is about it's about information but I think it's about communication. I think it's about the way things are communicated and not communicated and how we you know you're saying that the, in some cases the powers that be at institutions might hear what you're saying or what someone like you is saying about this material but not let it Actually, enter the dialogue yeah. in a as a course of study or something like yeah. that. Which
0: I mean, I think like that's also I I will like give you something that I normally wouldn't talk about, which is your power of each. But like, I did a lecture to a bunch of healthcare providers um, from like the position of a patient, right? Um, all mostly psychiatrists and social workers earlier this year and i think that showing them that i w- was capable of making something like this like probably messed with a lot of the assumptions that there might be
2: yes yeah
0: i think like doing that as a songwriter also messes with assumptions that there are about artists mm-hmm. things like that so i don't know i kind of believe in screwing it all up
2: <laughs> yeah just proving that something of this magnitude, and I don't mean to uh, overflatter you, but to prove that uh, you can use the forums that you have at your disposal for something substantive and incisive and critical, I think that's actually hugely significant. And we've seen some examples of this over the last century (laughs) of people trying to use their platforms whatever their artistic or cultural platforms are for for this kind of work and um in some senses if they are less concerned about the commercial implications of such things (laughs) they'll still do it yeah Uh, yeah
0: you cannot hear about that stuff yeah i mean those things are already decided for a lot of us right like you don't have the right cheekbones yes you it it doesn't matter what aspirations you have towards commercial success so I'm like lucky that those things are decided and I just can't see a purpose as an artist except to make something that you think is interesting to make and then also that is interesting for other people to be with it feels like a waste of time and space otherwise. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Which right. isn't to say that a simple song doesn't do that. I think there are like abstractly incisive things that are made all the time. Songs that are written all the time by really skilled songwriters. Mm-hmm. So I don't think like I don't think this is the only way to do it. No. But definitely I, I thought that like the material that I got into kind of merited the complication of thirty pages of writing. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. and making a record. Yeah. Let's move on, actually, to Mouser.
0: Yeah. Like the thing, the song that I had, like the maybe the least information about the person, really. Um, and it's a lot of fiction in there, yeah. But it's kind of derived from this thing that you see pop up a lot in the archive in the case files is that basically, I think, what we would call now postpartum depression, yeah. People having also psychosis after Uh um, giving birth. And this woman would, I think, she had nine children over the course of 11 years and she um so that information was known to me and she was found trying to kill a cat by her sister in the back i think in the barn and so i was thinking about her motivation and i thought like oh perhaps the cat was pregnant and she was like taking mercy on the cat like you know thing that happens a lot in my life I notice is that people who are very empathetic often are considered insane Like, pe- we're, you know your friends who like can read the depth of something are always addressing the depth when maybe the depth doesn't want to be addressed right. you know right. and, and especially a lot of women I know who are empaths really struggle in the world so I was thinking of this character kind of that way like she was trying to put this cat out of its misery.
2: Right. Yeah. There's obviously a... Maybe it's not obvious, but there there certainly can be a, a burden when you are an empath.
0: Yeah, and and like you bear so many children.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Is there anything you want to say about the musical uh, arrangement on Mouser? Uh,
0: the, the players on that are the Lonesome A-string band. That's Chris Cool, John Schumann, and Max Hyman. And they are a really fantastic string band. I think their choice of repertoire is incredibly good, and their last record was called Gone Forevermore. Um, They were like my, yeah, some of my favorite musicians, and anyone who might not know if they like old time music should check these guys out, because they take, they're kind of like, if you listen to bluegrass music, it's seldom seen where like the weirdos of, of bluegrass in the '70s. I feel like these guys are kind of the hippies of old time in this in this way, but they're like incredibly skilled at the same time. You know, their hippiedom doesn't screw with their proficiency as musicians.
2: Right. That's a that's a nice balance to strike. Important. <laughs> <laughs> we move on to uh, Haldeman County. Am I saying that correct? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Inhale how to
2: Holloman County. Actually, speaking of musicianship, reminds me of maybe um, like a Ralph Stanley thing, maybe mm. or something from that.
0: Yeah, Christine Schmidt sings with me on it.
2: And who's Christine Schmidt?
0: She's um, an amazing singer that I've been watching for many years. She's got a, got a residency at the local in Toronto on Monday nights. She also books it, but she used to be in punk bands in Kitchener Waterloo, like you know, thirty years ago, and now uh, mm-hmm. she. Uh, was in a band called the Silverhearts and um, you know she's got that bell Re- Reed style of singing yeah. but also does things all into herself and she's actually a really tight songwriter like her, her songs are really cool. She knows the traditions so well but she's always writing outside the tropes in ways that maybe people who aren't familiar with the tropes wouldn't know. Like she's not only a hurting woman she's like Going on a lot of dates in her songs and like having a fun time too. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah. She put out a record la- two years ago called Christine Schmidt, I think.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> Schmidt. Diff- yeah. The same name.
0: Yeah, but it's spelled with two T's, not a D and a T. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and I was like, you know, we worked on the harmony together. She, we're doing something kind of unusual in this harmony line, actually, because she's not just like staying straight under me on it, like. We're, we're doing some weird stuff. So I really appreciate it. Very compelling. Things. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Uh, Haldeman County is takes place in the Haldeman Tract, which is a 940,000 acres that was awarded to the Haudenosaunee from the king after the American Revolutionary War. The Haudenosaunee uh, fought alongside the British loyalists during the American Revolutionary War and as a result lost their right, to be on the land that they'd inhabited for so long, um, which is now also known as New York. Um, And as, uh, yeah, they were given this land as a sovereign nation. And um, Hmm. over the course, like up until now, that land has been whittled down. There's this thing called the Haldeman Proclamation that said that they would have six miles on either side of the Grand River. And, of course, now that's been shrunk down from 940,000 acres to 5% of that. Hmm. That's known as Six Nations now. So maybe you know Six Nations. Um, And currently still there are disputes about land there. I think what I didn't know and what most settlers don't know is that Haudenosaunee were, even by British law, given that land as a sovereign nation. And so many people on that land now um, carry Six Nations passports. Right. And those are recognized outside of Canada. Oh. But they're not recognized by Canada. And Canada has figured out all these different ways over time to shrink that land. And one of them is a way that is the context for the song, Haldeman County and that is to accept squatters on that land. And so the singer of Haldeman County would have been a squatter. Um, She would have been among uh, British, Irish, Scottish migrants who would come over. And normally, if you were a squatter in Upper Canada, you weren't allowed to live um, without paying for the land. But if you happen to settle on Six Nations land or... Um, on the Haldeman Tract, as long as you were cultivating the land in a useful way, which is useful in quotes, um, useful according to British law, useful as in you were felling all of the oak trees and then cultivating food in a European agrarian sense. If you were doing that, you were allowed to stay, even if it was brought to court. Of course, the European courts ruled in favor of the settlers. The squatters that were doing kind of like running bars and things were not really respected um, as, um, you know, having rightful tenure to the land, and they were often thrown off the land. um, And so this woman would have been one of those. She would have worked at a tavern. The alcohol trade was big at the time, as it still is. And uh, she would have gotten a frontal lobe injury leaving the tavern one night from... um, Uh, Horse. I imagine that part. Um, This would have resulted in epilepsy, and epilepsy at the time was considered a form of insanity. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: You. I I want to unpack a little bit of what you said, just uh, by going to some passages from uh, the song. Um, Three of us squatters, Iroquois land. I could not rise to the new world's demands. A promise so different than what lay before me. Words rolling out, waves on the shore. Later on towards the end of the song. In fact, the song concludes with one day I'll be gone just a wave on the shore. Mm-hmm. I mean, you articulated the fact that this is a, a song about a person's relationship to the land they're on. That's really fascinating to me. I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about territory and land now in mm-hmm. terms of what is um, rightfully, wh- whose right it is <laughs> to claim uh, land. And uh, this song really, captures that dynamic in a, a really fascinating way hmm, I, just, I just want to say that
0: Thanks, there's really like a lot of things that went into that idea of that metaphor like the, of course first and foremost what you said the temporality of a wave migration by ship but then of course that the south side of Rockwood would have looked onto a lake so yeah. the metaphor available for people who were there would have been uh, you know, often water. There are a lot of horses and in stables in, in the music, too, you'll notice because I was thinking, like, what did people have available to them in right. terms of imagery? But then also um, I interviewed someone who had epilepsy, this guy Jordan, who I lost the contact information for and I feel so bad because I promised him a record when I was done it, but, like, I interviewed him in 2014, so if anyone knows Jordan, <laughs> <laughs> let me know. Um, <laughs> that maybe shows a bit how Good of a researcher. <laughs> I can't hold on to anything. Well, but um, he, he was telling me that he had this, thing before seizures where he would feel water, oh running the length of his arms. So that features in the bridge of the song. I thought that all tied together quite well.
2: Yeah, it does for sure. I realize now. I'm just looking at the clock, and I know you have another engagement. And this is a little unusual for this type of uh, episode. Of of this show, in which I go through every song, but we can't. No, nope. we just simply cannot go through um, every one of these songs. And at the same time, I know that um, this is something you do on a regular basis, right? Yeah. This kind of articulation.
0: Yeah, like the show has become this very funny thing where I talk for at least as long as I sing. Yeah. And I I love to perform it in that way. Hmm. Um. But yeah, I don't want to give you all my great You don't material. want to give away the banter.
2: <laughs> no, that's fair. And I, I mean, I think that it's clear uh, for anyone listening thus far that there's a lot of stuff here to process, a lot to unpack. Um, and on some level, I, I do think uh, we've framed the record well here. And I think we've talked about a number of the songs in terms of uh, your intent, and I think it's up to everyone to check this record out and, and figure it out, the rest of it out for themselves. Thanks, nice Never done this before, never just bailed, but it's just the time is the time. Yeah, the
0: time is the time, and like how much can I really give?
2: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> how much can you give, Simone, really? Is there anything about the remaining songs, any overarching thing you'd want to say?
0: I don't, I, I think that part of what I've loved about this project is that it's allowed me to encase many things in the same package or like another idea like to put all these different ideas in the same room and so any overlapping that a person might infer or might want to contemplate is like intentional yeah and so I think a lot about Settler colonial carceral systems about the violence of settler colonialism. Something that ran through a lot of the files was like a deep depression amongst women, uh, especially um, people who came here expecting that Turtle Island, which was called the New World to them, North would, America. Yeah, would be empty. Yeah, and there for the taking, and of course that wasn't the case, and it shouldn't be the case and what you have then is this violent act of settling whether that's a violence toward land in terms of not taking care of it or actually watching the violence that was taking place all around I think um, colonization comes back at people
2: I think that the one of the things that it's a shocking so shocking about colonization is that it seems to have been uh, undertaken with such indifference but I as I've processed your songs and your record uh, and this and the essay I feel like there must be an inherent understanding among the people who are implementing such things that what they're doing is wrong inherently wrong I would hope. I mean, I don't know. Unconsciously Like It's just, it seems obvious, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that there are a range of lies that are told to people to make it seem quite natural. that, yeah. That, you know, just like how white supremacy is normalized. You yes, know? it's true. And, but I think that ultimately what you see is people unable to deal with their surroundings, unable to understand how to be with the land, how to...
2: And then lashing out, I think. Yeah.
0: And... And so I think those in power then trying to control and trying to figure out how to deal with population control. 1830s to the 1840s, the population of Upper Canada settlers doubled. So what you had was like a time there was like a rebellion that was happening. There was a burgeoning middle class. There's the industrialization of society. And like all these people were total threats to the ruling class which had been an oligarchy which had yeah. been the family compact so institutions emerged and one thing that i learned that i had never known before was that in order for a district in canada to in upper canada to be called a district it had to have a jail that was the first thing that marked it as a yeah. district yeah. and so i think it's really interesting to think about the upper class like in britain that came to Canada to rule, explicitly to rule. And there's a big chapter, not a chapter, there's like a few paragraphs about Dr. Litchfield, who was a superintendent of Rockwood, and he was a totally fraudulent doctor.
2: Fake doctor, journalist.
0: Yeah, he Mm. had nothing to do. He He had a
2: way of talking that made it seem like he knew about what was going on, but he was a total fraud.
0: And he became the head of Rockwood. Yeah. And he was also really good friends with John A. McDonald. Right. So I think like—
2: So he was the attorney general at the time? Yeah. You know, not the prime minister? Yeah. So
0: I don't know. I think it's important to, to consider all these weird connections and power and how the ambition of some men means the incarceration of others and the total decimation of— Entire populations of people.
2: Yeah, and I think we there's a real exploration of power dynamics and insecurity uh, that drives uh, that lashing out. I'm talking about, and we we covered that a little bit. The ruling class just viewed people as other people as threats. Yeah, and so they're operating from a place of total fear, and that uh, for some reason is a switch in people's mind that condones all sorts of morally bankrupt acts. That are just completely uncivilized. And I think that's to sum it all up.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, No, I mean,
0: yeah. Like, and how do we, you know, how can you profit from that power too, right? Like, wow, to think about the salaries of the men running Rockwood and then how it was built by penitentiary labor. Yeah. Oh, and what would that have been like to be a laborer from the penitentiary building another prison effectively? Yes. Yes. And this still happens, right?
2: Yes, it's psychologically. It's Where's anyway. the
0: Closest jail
2: to here? Yeah. Well, there used to be one in Guelph, right? There was a women's penitentiary in Guelph. Oh, it's now by the the dump. Mm-hmm. It's by the city dump. I don't believe it's still. I know they use it for movie sets and stuff like that. Mm. Is that the one you refer? Do you no, know? No, I'm just wondering where that was one. Jail. Yeah. Did you not know about that one?
0: No, I knew about that one because they were also trying to turn it into Im- immigration detention center. Yes, under. I believe Back that's true. Day, yeah, yeah, Brenda Elliott got like really uh, can't. Well, we we were like, no, don't yeah. do it, right? Yeah. But um,
2: there's one in Milton, I think. Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know enough about it's. That's a good question. I don't know.
0: I think that is like a question for everyone to ask themselves. Where is the closest jail?
2: Yeah, that's that's a good one. Mm-hmm. I, I saw
0: it on a sign. I think of. Maybe it's a Passan sign. I don't know. I saw it in Montreal. Anyways, yeah, I always think of this.
2: It's a good thing to think about, and I think you've you've provided me with a lot to contemplate, and hopefully people (laughs) listening are intrigued. Is there one single song that we can go out on so that people can get a sense uh, of, you know, at least one whole song here?
0: Oh, I don't know. Pile Your Silver is a song about a woman who shoots twice with the intent to kill. She's marked as delusional by the liar doctor. Um, Right. (laughs) You know, she has the delusion that she's going to inherit a farm. And I always say it, but I like to think about the broader delusion in settler colonial society around entitlement to land. At the time in Upper Canada, if you were a woman, you couldn't own property, so she must have been technically delusional. But I think about the structures in society that set up all these weird behaviors and pathologizations and, and the notion of private property to begin with would be foundational to her delusion.
2: Okay. Anything you want to say about the music?
0: Just me and the guitar.
2: You and a guitar?
0: And Gavin Gardner helped me record it on a weird tape machine.
2: Right. He's of the Wooden Sky. that Yeah. Band. yeah. He okay. loves
0: to play with weird tape and, and he got like experimental. I tried to record all the songs on different machines and make it feel like distinct experiences. To each personality? Sound. Yeah. In a sense, yeah. But then I like had this spot on NPR and they were like, What is she saying? And I was like, Oh, that was like the song where I blew out the vocals so that it would be hard to understand the <laughs> consonants. Oops. <laughs> and they're like, she sounds like she's drunk. <laughs> and I was like, Oh shit <laughs> So whatever. Well
2: this is uh this is Polly Silver by Fiverr from the uh, latest collection Audible Songs from Rockwood. I hope there's more stuff from you coming. Are you working on the next another thing? Always, yes. Okay. So but I c- think
0: The Highest Order is going to have a live album soon.
2: Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we There's so much we could have talked about if we had more time. <laughs> but yeah. this is Pile Your Silver. Uh, Simone, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for your time.
0: Vish, thanks for caring.
2: And best of luck with everything going forward.
0: Okay, take care.
3: Upside to the west Two thoroughbreds, a with red And a barn filled with the rest Run with a babbling brook Calling me every evening By father's words, of full three-thirds Come to me his they Pile your silver up like dust Your clothing thick as clay Sinner, hold your weight and go out, right? Just work away. Pig to ham, corn to bread, leaf to smoke, and harvest, her old fed. Of all the things I help along, the fire loves me best. I would do it all along, but for the season's plot. So I keep a few I had to do. It is till it's night, pile your silver Up like dust Your clothing in thick as clay Sinner hold your weight And go while the righteous Work away Hot wind in the May before, when the apples start to bloom. I could tell how silence fell when I stepped in the room. More than once in passing, I overheard my name whispered low from friend foe, so foe my friend became. Pile your silver up like dust your cloth and thick as clay. Sinner hold your weight and go while the righteous work away. Two shots rang, out. I could, I surely would have seen them to their grave It must have been light when the police found me armed Too long, I've been a servant on my own rifle farm Now pile your silver up like dust, your clothes and the gas clay Sinner, hold your weight and go while the righteous work away while your silver up like this, you your down thick as clay. Sinner, hold your weight in gold while the righteous work away.
2: Special thanks to my old pal Simone Schmidt, who goes by fiver sometimes, for being on this, the three hundred and seventy-fourth episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network, and it's available on all your finer podcast platforms. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for, if you wanna or if you you know if you want to learn more about me, or sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit Vishkana.com. Just a reminder, you can like Creative Control with Vishkana on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. At Vish Creative or follow me at Vishkana. You can also listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at cfru.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph, Ontario. Also, please consider visiting patreon.com/slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going and just a reminder I still have some uh, t-shirts for sale well not for sale if you pledge to the show and you like a t-shirt send me a message and we'll figure something out I can try to get you one or maybe I can send you something else We'll we'll figure it out I have some stuff I wouldn't mind putting it in the mail let's just say that okay Well, that's pretty much uh, it for the show. I'd like to thank all the uh, sponsors who make the show possible. I mentioned them at the top of the show. I'd also like to thank uh, you for listening. And and just a reminder that uh, uh, if you'd like to spread the word about the show to your friends, that would be awesome. If you want to uh, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you use or follow the show, that would be awesome as well. And uh, download episodes of the show. That always helps. That helps a lot. What else can I tell you? Yeah, oh yeah, rate and review the show. That, all those podcasty things. Please continue to do those things. Thanks to all of you who do them. And that is it. I will talk to you very soon. Goodbye for now.